the National Archives podcast series, Filling the Gaps, presented by Professor Peter Hennessy. It's a treat to be here and an honour as well. Can I begin with a word of gratitude? For me, you're very definitely amongst the unsung heroines and heroes of the civil service, because together you provide not just professional historians like me, but the country with the finest collective memory of any government anywhere, that, and nobody else offers its citizens what you collectively do, which is a remarkable insight, if they want to go and look for it, into the procedures and thought processes, insofar as there are thought processes amongst politicians, uh, that go into the making of decisions. And yours, I know, is very sloggy, intricate work, and it's rarely in the news unless somebody's having a real moan about what hasn't been released. There's very much a scapegoating climate in this country, and occasionally you're the victims of it, and I regret that, because the sloggy bits, the indispensably sloggy bits, are never really fully appreciated. I think, I think archives are frozen history. That's what they are. And it's the job of me and my students and my colleagues to get to work on what you exhume. You're the first order, people. Without you, nothing works. And our job is then to get the limbs to move a bit and then the body to breathe and then, in the end, to get the documents to talk to us. So really, I think that's what it is. It's like crime scene, really, this stuff, in a funny sort of way. And in recent years, you've had to cope with first the Walgrave Initiative and more recently freedom of information without any extra resources. Indeed, ministers, who in my generation have a unique capacity to tell themselves fairy stories, declared that FOI would be resource neutral. <laughs> they are funny. And when the, Dake, when the Dacre Review is published, and I think it's going to recommend 20, with, with coming down one year at a time over 10 years to get down to 20, they'll, they will recommend, I'm sure, that it's properly resourced and so on, but ministers, again, will say it's resource neutral. I don't know what happens to people, really. It's very odd when your own generation is in the Cabinet and you know some of them for a long time. They're quite rational when they were 22 and 23. <laughs> and something happens to the poor souls, isn't it? Never mind. They need a care worker, not a historian, to sort them out. I'll come back to the Waldgrave Initiative and FOI in a minute. But first of all, let me engage in a bit of now and then. Come back with me down here to the early 1970s, when I, well, it was actually in uh, Portugal Street, when I was, I'm so old, when I began in the business, before the move to Kew. Now, I was a journalist on The Times from about 74, 75 onwards, so I went from being a research student to a journalist on The Times and continued to come and look at the releases. Now, back in the 70s, the Cold War was still on, it was the era of blanket bans on any file with the slightest whiff of intelligence or security in it. A whole lot. The subject of a blanket ban, which went along with the 67 Act. It wasn't to be reviewed for 25 years, till 1992. But we made little bits of progress. John Hunt, as Cabinet Secretary, was a thoroughly good man, and as a former Secretary of the Joint Intelligence Committee, decided, after a bit of nudging, that just the mention of the initials JIC would not put an automatic 75-year or 100-year on it anymore. And his private office rang me to tell me, and I alerted my great friend and now dead Tony Bevins to this, and we were told we could come down here and get the first fruits. And as you can see, I very had a very sad life, really, that the excitement mounted by the time we got through Parsons Green, and by the time we got off at Kew, we were beside ourselves. And we come in here, just Tony and me, and there it is. Late 40s stuff, mid to late 40s. 
and one of them had chemical, biological and nuclear warfare on it. So we send for it, by which time I'm almost prostrate with excitement, and it arrives, and it's a cutting from the New York Times by Hanson Baldwin in 1946 on chemical, biological and nuclear warfare, and somebody in the British Embassy has sent it back to the Foreign Office and to the Cabinet Office with, the JIC might like a glance at this. (laughs) Oh, the hand that had given certainly took away that day. But things did get much better. The nuclear weapons world was almost entirely closed to us in the 70s, as was civil and home defence. There were, in short, many missing dimensions to the history of post-1945 Britain, which is my patch. It's been absolutely transformed since then. Absolutely transformed. The archive here, however, was still, even in the 70s and early 80s, rich and with occasionally more candid material than I'd ever expected. For example, when the Suez files were declassified. Not everything was there, by any means the intelligence didn't come, the Joint Intelligence Committee stuff, till much, much later. But the release was much richer than I perhaps I'd expected. And indeed, I was down here for the press preview at the end of 1986 with my BBC producer, Mark Leighty, because we were going to do a special on Suez for third programme, Radio 3, which we did. And Mark found it, the smoking minute, 23rd of October 1956, sitting next to me, the confidential annex to the normal cabinet minutes. And there in the confidential annex, it said that from secret conversations in Paris with the French and the Israelis, it was quite plain now that the Israelis would not attack Egypt alone. And there it was. The cabinet who'd survived Suez all said that the collusion, the secret collusion, they weren't told about that. Well, they were, weren't they? You didn't have to work at GCHQ to decode that. And I remember showing it to Ted Heath, whose face changed like the weather in April when I showed him that. Because he actually knew as chief whip, but a lot of the others did not, or pretended they didn't. And that was the smoking minute. And the normal cabinet minutes didn't have a trace of that. We had, for a long time, however, to wait for the hottest single document, which is the protocol from the meetings in Paris, uh, in exactly the same days that that cabinet was meeting, 22-23 October 1956, the Sev protocol. Because Anthony Eden was horrified when the British civil servants who were there Uh, Donald Logan and Patrick Dean, for the second meeting, brought back the protocol the French had typed up. And he said it shouldn't be written down and ordered the Cabinet Secretary to burn it, which, of course, is now illegal, as you know as well as I do, but it wasn't then. There wasn't even a 50-year rule then. But you see, there is a god of the archives, and it's a god of wrath, because there is a copy of the Sev Protocol in here now with its own classification number, because the Ben-Gurion archive in Israel photocopied it for the National Archives. But even when the Cold War was over, there was still a kind of chilly overhang affecting a lot of the post-war records. And the Walgrave Initiative actually did that. William Walgrave, Minister for Open Government in Major's Cabinet after 92. And I found the other day the, how that happened, the text of it. I was doing a Radio 4 documentary for the analysis programme on open government. And I'd asked William if he could see his way clear to remove the blanket ban as part of the 1992, because it's a 1992 programme, uh, the 1992 review on the blanket ban on intelligence. And he did, and he, I said, announce it for me on this programme. He wrote me a letter. I said, announce it on the Radio 4 programme, which he did. And he got carried away. And um, the first thing he said, it's all in this transcript, I think what I'm thinking we'll do at the moment is we'll publish a white paper sometime in the relatively near future which will both set out some practical steps and procedures and make, reaffirm the doctrines of releasing as much as you can. I don't think now that the real expectations would be met by merely reissuing an internal directive. 
And I wonder why the private secretary went a bit funny and began to make verbatim notes. I discovered earlier that this promise of a white paper, which became the open, open government white paper, came out of the blue. And the moment we'd left, he shot down to the cabinet secretary, Robin Butler, and said, the minister's given away a white paper on open government. And Robin Butler was quite pleased in a way, actually. But the poor private secretary died the death because he didn't know this was coming. And then William got completely carried away and said to me, because we'd known each other for a while, he gave me the good news about the JIC being removed from the blanket ban and thereafter being a catch-up period before we could actually get up to date with it, up to 30 years. And then he said, um, that'll be a benefit for historians and I'd like to look for other individual serious blocks of material that will be of interest to historians. And what we did as a basis of that, the Institute of Contemporary British History, was have two weekend conferences at the Senate House. The first time that people like you had met people like me on a regular, proper basis. Everybody came, and my lot, our lot, were quite well organised. And the reason why the, what the open government policy of the major administration, the bit that worked best, was our bit, the Walgrave Initiative, the, the whole documents bit, mainly because a lot of us had worked down here and the catalogues had a large amount of stuff in there which, which was retained, but we knew what it was, as you know. And so we gave shopping lists. And the DROs seemed to enjoy our company, and we certainly enjoyed the company of the DROs. And getting to know each other was very important to this. And so the conversation began. And within about seven years, 100,000 files had been re-reviewed and released, mainly defence intelligence, Cold War-related, but not entirely. I suppose it must be 200,000 now. Must be. But it was a wonderful breakthrough for all of us, I think, because it gave we historians the equivalent of a new currency with which to trade. And the research students are still living off that, filling in the gaps. I mean, Justine's year at Queen Mary was a vintage one, not just because of Justine, though largely, um, but some of her mates have gone on to produce very fine PhDs which have made use of this material and which are now flowing into books, uh, The Delayed Effect of Waldgrave. And it's nothing but one huge success story, that. Again... You were given no extra money or people to do it, but it was done across Whitehall to great effect. And it was the greatest single mutually beneficial act of recent times, surpassed only by the 1958 and 1967 statutes. I don't include FOI in that list of great breakthroughs, you'll notice. Now, why is that? Partly because it's early days, but partly because it has limitations for historians. What we need is runs of documents. Little bits here and there are nice but they're not enough to get the feel of it, which is why the proactive release route, which the Advisory Council on Security and Intelligence Records, which Simon Rice hit on, has done some good things there. And I was always rather concerned that FOI would smother Waldgrave, because Waldgrave is what scholars really need. And the more scholars can have conversations with people like you about what might be proactively released, the better, short of a 30-year norm. And it works very well that way. And I think you can always tot it up to the FOI returns, which you've got to do all the time, haven't you? But it's much better if you have these prior conversations, I think, um, than to wait for the individual request to come in. It's partly, if I'm honest, because the young scholars don't want to be lumped in with those ghastly fruitcakes that give you a terrible time, you know, the most awkward people in the kingdom. I think FOI should be sponsored by the charity Mind, actually. <laughs> It's brought a kind of catharsis and therapy to the truly disturbed, isn't it? But the trouble is, 
You have to interpose your body between the truly disturbed and the archive at regular intervals. There are certain exceptions about FOA. Archie Brown, who's professor at St Anthony's Oxford, who was one of those Soviet historians that Mrs T called in before the swerve on policy towards the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union in the early 80s, those seminars she had at Chequers. And he got the files released from the Foreign Office and has written a wonderful article on them. He got the whole lot, actually, including the Foreign Office's reservations about Mrs T talking to outsiders. You see, nothing. things have changed a little bit there as well, for the good. But Archie's piece of scholarship is a very... It's important, very, very important, actually, because it did change British foreign policy. But again, it's a manageable chunk, and it's very hard to get anything on a much bigger scale than that under FOI, or at least so far, it seems to be. But enough of all this trade association talk... You and your systems don't just exist to keep we historians intellectually fed and watered. There's a wider constituency. Often it's rather crudely called public history. I've never known quite what that meant. But the Histories UK group had a session on it last Saturday, which I spoke at in the Senate House again, Institute of Historical Research. We all know there's been a great boom for history. Um, And there's the literary festivals. It's not just that, that certain history books sell very well, but the literary festivals are absolutely booming. Cheltenham broke all records last month. Over 100,000 people came. I love the literary festivals because it's the Radio 4 audience made flesh. And even the blokes wear Laura Ashley, you know, the sort of chap. And um, they're great consumers of our final joint product because that's what it is, as I was describing earlier. But when I speak to these groups or the literary festivals, the resonances for them are really very considerable or seem to be. And particularly when when it's archive-based, when it's your stuff, when it's come through here. For example, my most recent work, uh, it was a big book on the general history of Britain in the 50s. And when I talk at the literary festivals, I talk about the resonances of that period for today. The Great Power Impulse, for example. Not just the scar of Suez, which the scar of Iraq has certainly re-aroused interest in that, but also... Why is it that successive generations of British politicians want to be the head of government of a country that's not just a country with a certain amount of GDP, a certain number of people, and a certain amount of military kit? They have these enormous aspirations. But when you think about it, and it's very evident from the files here as well as the conduct of Her Majesty's government today, that British males as prime ministers, well, Margaret too in this certainly fitted this, whether they know it or not, are prisoners of the British Empire. You see, Tony was Lord Curzon. You biffed Johnny Foreigner into line for his own good. Gordon is different. He is the Church of Scotland Missionary Society. You give them a tract, a Bible, a plan of how to dig a well, and a bit of money. That's why the diplomatic service is in such terrible state, and all the money goes through diffid, you see. And that's straight out of the British imperial tradition as well. Of course, the best bits are never down here. I mean, I had to talk in May to a remarkable group of people, the Crown Overseas Service Pensioners Association annual reunion lunch at the Union Jack Club off Edgware Row. They're wonderful, the old district commissioners. And all the blokes look like Wilfred Thessinger. They've been in the sun too long, aren't they? <laughs> and the Memsabs, I shall say no more. Wonderful, wonderful. Anyway, I'll calm down again in a minute. And uh, I, I, say, I said to them at the end, it, it's very hard to teach your era, even the end of empire now, to the young students, because they've no real feel for it, actually. And the empire arouses this great gamut of emotions, not all of which are good, and not, not all the memories are good either, and indeed they shouldn't be. But I said to them, and of course this isn't any file, no empire died in the way yours did when, when you were last serving it. 
Europe. See, the files down here are wonderful on Europe, the terrible emotional deficit we've had with Europe, right through from the coal and steel community days. All in these files, the ones I'm working on now for my 60s book, the first application and after, it's very apparent. Oh, you can keep secrets, can't you? Well, 1990, the Foreign Office had a seminar on how to reduce the emotional deficit of the Brits with Europe. And I'd spent a lot of time here reading the files, so I talked about it being difficult because we didn't invent it and all the rest of it. And how Bernard Williams, the philosopher, said this to me once. He said the language of the European Commission is all French, really. It's, when you think about it, he said, the European community was created by clever Catholic left-wing French bureaucrats. Clever Catholic French left-wing bureaucrats. And most Brits have problems with at least three of those five categories. <laughs> And if we'd invented it, it'd be like the Cabinet Minutes. People would be invited to do things not directed. And would you mind awfully seeing your way clear and all this sort of stuff? And um, so the Foreign Office said, what can we do to reduce the deficit? And I said, um, two things. The Prince of Wales, when he had his last session with his Director of Studies in Trinity College, Cambridge, in June 69, who was a friend of mine, the, not the, the Director of Studies, not the Prince, and said to him as a joke, Charles, what do you want to do in life? I, sir, he said, want to be King of Europe. And I said to the Foreign Office, he's good with Johnny Foreigner. He believes in proportional representation. He's green. He talks to trees. He'd be ideal. Did they listen to me? Did they hell? And they said, well, what else? And I said, well, when the single currency comes, get it called something ancient and English like the groat, and we'll think it's ours. They didn't listen to me on that either. <laughs> then there's the bomb, which I did a thing down here last year, I think. Cabinets and the bomb. Wonderful archival stuff from here. Our myling group at Queen Mary, the British Academy, and the National Archives were partners on this. And it's a kaleidoscope of reasons for getting in the business and staying in it. And they don't change much except the advent of the French as a nuclear power. And if my bug was working in Tony Blair's cabinet room in 19, 2006, December, I think it was, all these terrible old lefties who were CND when I knew them first consoled their consciences because there wasn't a single dissenting voice by saying we can't have the French as the sole nuclear power in Europe, can we? And the documents down here are terrific on all, all the reasons. Wherever you stand on the pro or con, Britain being a nuclear weapons power. And that's a remarkable story and a remarkable archive. And the one that's crying out to be done is cabinets and civil nuclear power. And a remarkable story, and it's all in here, but it's all over the place. And that's very live again. There's only one line of history in the government's white paper of last January on us becoming civil nuclear again in a big way. And that's from Gordon and his forward saying it's a proven technology and history shown. Well, there's a terrible history of how not to do it down here, actually. Not a word of it in there. It's where it should be. Whitehall Air is getting much better at horizon scanning. And what I've noticed about, and this isn't just the secret agencies, government, chief scientists and all the rest of it, all, everybody horizon scans now, and they pool much better than they used to. And they really are, and they seem to be very interested in the historical background to all of this, not just previous attempts at horizon scanning, but the history of particular episodes. And they, they're quite animated by the notion of Fernand Brodel, the great anal historian in France, about the slow, medium, and fast pulses of history and how they blend and how you have to see how they intermingle at various stages to have the slightest chance of horizon scanning. And I start them off when I do it with the 1904, the Committee of Imperial Defence, the first war books, 1919 to 20, Emergency Powers Act, the Supply and Transport Organisation, which Baldwin used to break the general strike, which is the lineal descendant of today's Civil Contingencies Secretariat, or a good part of it. Joint Intelligence Committee, 1936, 
all source analysis for the first time, systematically every week, including now. 3739, civil defence and home defence planning. Again, there's a lineal successor in that now in terms of the Civil Contingencies Act 2005. The Sterling War Books, post-war Sterling War Books in the days of fixed exchanges in case the currency collapsed. The Cold War planning stuff is some of the most dramatic product of the Walgrave Initiative. I'll come back to that in a minute, and all that's down here now. Northern Ireland counter-terrorism from 68 on, 69 onwards. The Civil Contingencies Unit, driven by those strikes which hit the essentials of life in the early 70s. And what I say to them is that you can't have a sense of what Brodell called the thin wisps of tomorrow that are just discernible today unless you've got good history behind you. And it takes me and my research students very often, sadly, to remind current Whitehall what the history is because there's hardly any collective memory now. But anyway, the, the horizon scanners are very keen on what we do and it may be in your departments, because you've all got horizon scanners now of various kinds, that you make quiet links with them to see if you can help them with particular cases and studies and so on and direct them towards the literature. For example, very few people were aware until my students and I made a fuss about it, of the future policy study that Macmillan commissioned in 59 to 60, where we would be by 1970. It's the most thoroughgoing example of all this ever. It's brilliantly done, and very carefully done by the very best people in Whitehall in terms of rank and background. Best is a loaded word. And nobody's tried to do it on that canvas since. And the Foreign Office got quite keen on it because um, we told them about it. But uh, it had to be our product that alerted them, not their internal resources. But um, I want to finish on my happiest discovery down here. Well, it wasn't mine, actually. It was one of my MA students, but David is at the, wherever he is helped me on this because he, he alerted me when follow-up files were coming, as did my friends in the Cabinet Office. Now, if this file had not been declassified and I told you this story, you would have thought I would have lost it. And indeed, in this very room, we had the Indian and Pakistani nuclear weapons community for a seminar when the Secret State exhibition was running here in 2004, and they came to see all this. And I told them this story. <coughs> I was there to uh, show that the old imperial power wasn't patronizing them, that our way of doing nuclear weapons took a long time to sort of sort out tight command and control. The whole object was to get them to get good command and control by learning from our experience, you see. And I was there, I think, to do a kind of Ealing comedy to show that the imperial power was not perfect. And it's the story of the end of the world and the British Prime Minister in the early 60s. 1960, come back to the 1960s, a file upstairs on this. Lord Mountbatten is chief of the defence staff, very close to the Americans. And the Joint Intelligence Committee has informed everybody that the Sovs have got nuclear weapons firing submarines in the North Sea now, which could put missiles on the East Anglian and Lincolnshire V-bomber bases because it wasn't Polaris or Trident then, it was bombers, within two minutes, and so the four minutes wasn't enough. So what do you do? Well, the V-bomber's got a system that enables them to get up in one and a half minutes. And what about the Prime Minister being wiped out by a preemptive strike, you see? Well, a very secret Cabinet Committee is set up. Should the Prime Minister have, as the American President does, a military officer with him all the time, French president does too, and the Russian, with the codes, the launch codes, in a briefcase, night and day, wherever they are. Macmillan didn't want any fuss. The Treasury didn't want to spend any money, so they compromised. And there's this Im amazing electronic diagram, which I don't understand. With the top right-hand corner, there's a little Rolls-Royce, because the Prime Minister had Rolls in those days, with a jagged line going to it from this electronic mush. Through a box marked Automobile Association. 
And what that was, was the phone in the Prime Minister's car, no car phones though, which was the AA system. So the blokes on the bikes, remember the older of you remember the blokes on the bikes used to salute and so on. They had little AA boxes along all the trunk roads. And the idea was for this phone to go off when the end of the world was nigh, if the Prime Minister's out of town, to tell him to get out of the car and go to a phone box and ring in. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> now, this was beyond belief, really. <clears throat> the cost of being a, a hydrogen bomb power was enormous, very sophisticated, but the last bit depended on a non-coded AA message going through to this phone in the Prime Minister's car. Well, it gets better, doesn't it? Because the next tranche of releases, which I hadn't come out by the time I talked to the Indian subcontinent nuclear people in this very room. There's an exchange of letters in February 1962, just in time for the Cuban Missile Crisis, from the private secretary to the Minister of Works, who did government cars, to the private secretary of Harold Macmillan in number 10. Dear Tim, he says, to Tim Bly, Macmillan's man, three of the cars are now fitted with the AA phones. They will be serviced by Pies of Cambridge, and the system is now operational. May I make a suggestion? When the phone goes off and the Prime Minister has to get to the nearest phone box, I can't bear the thought of his last four minutes on earth being taken up by a fruitless search for a compliant bus conductor to give him the four pennies he needs to press button A, some of you very old remember, to get through to number ten. I suggest your drivers carry four pennies with them. <laughs> Bly writes back, Dear Saunders, thank you so much for your kind and thoughtful letter. Uh, they will carry four pennies. We've also signed up to the AA so we can use their phone boxes. <laughs> but there is now, you know, something called subscriber trunk dialing. The Prime Minister can always dial a hundred and reverse the charges. <laughs> now, that is the file to end them all. And nobody would have believed it if it wasn't one of your products. But again, some of the other... I'll finish with this other one. The best bits can't, aren't recorded. And I remember telling somebody about... Somebody was asking me what I was finding down here. And I said, well, the moment of greatest nuclear peril, oddly enough, I found, was the week of the Suez Crisis when GCHQ in the Middle East thought the, Sov the Soviet Air Force was moving into Syria in large numbers. It was a false alarm. And the signal went back. Rush, flash, clear the decks, go on to alert condition, whatever it was. Oh, no, he said, no, the moment of greatest peril was June 1963. And I said, this is Michael Quinlan, I can tell you now. And uh, he used to run MOD. I said, no, no, what, what do you mean October 62, Cuba? He said, I know very well what I mean, rather tartly. Don't you remember the Lord's Test in June 63? I said, of course I do. Every schoolboy of my age does. Last over, Colin, it could be a tie, a draw, an England win or an Australian win. And Colin Cowdery had to come out with a broken arm as the 11th man in, while David Allen of Gloucestershire in England had to sort of keep Wes Hall out for one over in a terrible light at Lord's. They'd have gone off these days. And I said, well, so what? He said, well, it took Colin and David Allen to see out that over much longer than four minutes. And you know, he said, every single screen in the war room under the air ministry linked to Filingdale's ballistic missile early warning system, was on the Lord's test. <laughs> the Russians could have had us cost-free. <laughs> now, that isn't in any file, of course. But enough of this rambling. Thank you very much again for what you do. I need you and posterity needs you. And you are, for those of you who know about brain surgery, the hippocampus of the system. Nothing works without you lot, and I salute you for that. Thank you very much.
This event was recorded live on the 13th of November 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved.